I invite uh, you to turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel 8. We're moving along there, chapter 8, verses 1 through 22. If you're using the church Bibles, you're going to find that on page 195. If you're using the church Bibles, you'll also find out, as I read the scripture, it's not exactly how your scripture will be, just because I'm reading from a different translation, the English Standard Version, and I'm both translations are fine. I'm just, I'm just used to the English Standard Version, so it's hard for me to change. So, First um, Samuel eight one through twenty two, and, and actually the way that I'm going to be doing the message, I'm going to just be reading as we go along in the sermon itself. Now you've heard the phrase the um, the end of an era. I'm sure you've used that a, a number of times. It's said whenever. Uh, maybe a patriarch or matriarch of the family has passed. I know my own family. I've got one uncle left, and uh, at his passing, that'll be the end of an era. Or something, an institution changes, uh, a head officer leaves or whatever. It's the end of an era. And we're reaching, actually, the end of an era in our chapter today. It's an end of an era for the history of Israel. What's changing is that the rule by judges of Israel is coming to an end. Samuel will be the last judge. And this chapter is that demand of the people to make that change to a king. And so the next Sunday, you'll start, we'll have our first king. But it also raises for us not only just an interesting part of Israel's history, but it's going to beg the question for us is this. Who or what rules us? To put it simply, who is our king? Now, the opening uh, verses present the circumstances that leads to this change. So I'm in verse 1, verses 1 through 3. When Samuel became old... He made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the, second of his, and the name of his second, Abijah. There were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So let's just ask for a moment. Let's just get kind of clear for us about what was a judge in those days. And like our present-day judges, they, they settle disputes. And as the judge over Israel, Samuel traveled throughout the tribes of Israel doing just that. People would bring their disputes before him. But there was more to the role back then for that type of judge. Judges were also leaders of the people. And in fact, oftentimes the way that someone became a judge was at a moment of crisis, enemies were invading, and the judge, that person, led military battles. And then they became judge after that. They also handled, in a sense, administrative matters, trying to figure out how to really, again, to govern. In other words, a judge combined in himself or herself our three branches of government. They could be a judge, the judicial, the executive, and the, what does that leave me with, the legislative, 
all playing that same role. In fact, actually, as Presbyterians, what we have closest to that are our elders, kind of putting all of those together. Now, there is no set system of becoming a judge. He or she, as in the case of Deborah, rose to the fore as needed, again, usually to protect Israel from enemies. And this idea of Samuel appointing his sons as judges, that's the only time we have that, at least recorded in Scripture, of a judge trying to pass down his title, his mantle, to his family line. Now, perhaps Sam would have succeeded had not his sons been so despicable in the same way that Eli's sons were. They were using their positions already to pervert justice. And so as far as the people are concerned, something has got to change. It is time for this system of judges to go. Let's pick back up in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. I'm actually going to skip down all the way down to verse 19, because again, it just reiterates what they want. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us. And go out before us and fight our battles. Now, it's not hard to understand the perspective of of the people that's being presented by their elders. I mean, again, first of all, they get this prospect of Samuel naming his worthless sons to be their judges. That's discouraging, to say the least. I mean, with them as judges, the nation's back to the old days of being under like Eli's sons. The second thing is that the nation has always struggled, ever since Joshua's death. They've come into this land, they've always struggled to remain stable and in control of the land, you know, that God had brought them into. Indeed, more often than not, they were being ruled by stronger nations. And so they're they're thinking about it. Why is this happening to us? Well, they look about. What is it that these other nations that are always stronger than we are. What do they have that we do not? Oh, they have a king. The king provides unity, provides stability. He provides governing leadership. He provides military leadership. And he's not an occasional leader like these Israelite judges are who just happen to rise up from time to time. So the problem, in other words, is this. It's the system. The system of government needs changing. At least one from occasional leadership to a permanent one. Now, it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense for stability and security. And Samuel hates the idea. Now, perhaps he's just taking the matter personally. I mean, after all, he's a judge. And he's the one selecting his sons. Well, whatever his reason for hating it, he didn't actually say why. We learn the reason that the Lord God is displeased with this. We'll pick back up in, chapter, in verse 6. 
But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are doing to you. So however reasonable the perspective of the people may seem, what lies in their heart is the rejection of the rule of their Lord. And as the Lord points out, that's how they've always been. Their story is a nation. From the day that he had delivered them out of Egypt, they're continually disobeying him, continually rebelling. And so whereas the people, they point to the, it's the system that's the problem, God points to the condition of their hearts. That's the problem. So even though, though, that the Lord is... Um, Offended by the people's demand, he's nevertheless is going to grant it. But he does give them warning as to what to expect with a, and by the way, don't come back to me when the problems I predict happen. Don't come back to me and complain about it. Okay. So let's pick up in verse 9. Now then, obey their voice. This is God speaking to Samuel. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and, and to make implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in the day that you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you. In that day. So the people, they want a king to govern them, to provide security. And they might get these things to a degree. It all depends upon who that king is. But here's what will definitely happen. That king is going to make demands on the people. They want security. Well, then they better be prepared to support a full-time military. They want a king to rule? Well, then be prepared to support this king who will demand all the trappings that go with being a ruler. So they're going to be taxed 10% of what they produce. But more importantly, demands will be made on labor. And so the king, he'll take their sons and daughters for his servants. He will take, not ask, 
in effect, the people will become his slaves. They will end up serving the king that they had wanted to serve them. Now, this warning will see its fruits in, in the reign of, of Solomon. Solomon was admired for all of his, his wealth and all the trappings that went with sustaining that wealth, but it came at the cost of rebellion after his death. Why? Because the people just didn't want any more of that, exactly what our passage predicted. Well, despite the warning, the people remained firm in their demand, and so the next step will be taken to anoint a king. So let's pick it up again in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and then verse 21. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's just take stock now. What some of the things that we can, can pick up from this passage. And the first thing that comes to mind as we're reading this is that we need to understand there is no foolproof system of human government. Okay? Now, the people here, they faced a, a dilemma. They were being... They're about to come under the judgment of Samuel's wicked sons. But instead of looking for a righteous person to, to judge them, they go after a change of system. It's the system. You just get the right system, then everything will be okay. And they look about them at their neighbors. And they say, well, they keep getting the best of us. It must be that king that's the difference maker. Now, never mind the illogic that a kingship that is passed down, you know, to son after son after son, puts them in the exact same predicament that they were facing here with Samuel, trying to pass down his mantle to his sons. And if anything, this new system guarantees, I mean, it guarantees that they're going to be poor rulers, and the addition to that is also, it's going to be a lot more difficult to remove a king than a judge. So this kind of begs the question for us, doesn't it? I mean, what is the best form of government? Is it ruled by judges? By kings? Is it communism? Is it socialism? Is it democracy? Maybe there's some kind of combination and we're kind of quickly moving out. As I'm working, as moving out of my expertise, I wasn't a political science major. I'm not up on, on all of that. But the main reason why we're moving out of my expertise is we're moving outside of the clear teaching of Scripture. I preach Scriptures. And the closest example we actually have a democracy is this period of the judges. It's when really basically their elders in their local Areas, you know, would make decisions for them and people uh, had, a, had a say. And actually it was to a restricted degree of, uh, of Israel in the time of, the, of Jesus' day. I mean, they had an empire watching over them and enforcing things, but they actually had local bodies of, of rulers, the Sanhedrin, in each town, and the people could have some kind of say. 
But again, the truth of the matter is that there's no foolproof system of human government for one simple reason that Scripture makes clear. All human government is run by who? Humans. Sinful human beings. And the problem for government is that it places in authority human beings who are all susceptible to temptation. Temptation of power, greed, immorality, and so on. So whether the governing individual is a king, a dictator, or a low-level bureaucrat, maybe even a clerk, we might have good intentions, but we also, all of us, every one of us has our own personal prejudices. And all of us are going to give greater attention to what personally affects us, what personally matters to us. And so even in a democracy such as ours, which I think is the best system, I'm glad I'm in a democracy, the system is hampered by the sins that beset the human heart. That's just good theology. No human government, whatever the system, and for whatever troubles it is trying to cure, will govern free from corruption and mismanagement. It cannot happen. Government is necessary. Good government can accomplish much good. But even that good government will ultimately be undermined by inevitable sin. So the first lesson we, we look here, look, the problem is not the judges. The problem is not the system. The problem is the human heart. And the other thing that get, then goes with this, all human government, no matter how great their leaders and, and, and whoever it may be, all human government is under the impossible task of governing humans, sinful human beings. Let's go back to these people here. They had the right to be, con- to be concerned about Samuel's sons as being their judges. But their very attempt at coming up with a solution demonstrates their own sinful nature. Who did they look to for answers? Their pagan neighbors. Okay. And what, they, what was it that they envied in their neighbors? It was might. It was power. It was not righteousness. And they failed to see how their own lack of care for one another. That's what's allowing for the injustice, by the way, of, of Samuel's sons to exploit. They failed to see that the troubles that they caused... By being sinners, that's really who's making it so difficult to have good rule. You see, the truth of the matter is, you know, people in general, we will easily blame poor leadership for our own poor behavior. I mean, we see this. We see you know, children growing up to be adults who can't seem to make it in life. What's the problem? The problem is their parents, or the problem is with the system that won't give them the breaks that they need. People who are lazy, they blame the system. They blame the authorities for their failure to get ahead. Somehow they just can't make the connection. But more to the point is what Jesus said. It's this, that we too easily see the gnat that's in 
our neighbor's eyes without seeing the log that's in our own. That's true. We don't see our own selfishness that way very well. We don't see our own greed. We don't see our own personal fears and prejudices that we so easily nail others with. And this inevitably leads to disputes that we inevitably will tend to then blame on poor government that they can't get things resolved. That's easy today, isn't it? To see the rancor that goes on in government politics today and, and it goes on in the, in the, uh, the public arena. Now, again, I don't know enough of, of history and of politics to, to know that if the, the divide is greater to today than it was before, the little bit that I, I have read, I know that there was corruption, lying, deceiving, immorality, and so on in government and in our country in previous decades and centuries. But I would say this. There are two new factors that just stoke the flames of of controversy and enmity and, and bitterness today. I think the first one and the most grievous one is that we are at the end of an era, aren't we? We're at the end of an era in our own, that we're facing in our own nation. And that's namely that the end of the Christian Judaic code is no longer the norm for our values. So we have abortion. We have the growing happening of euthanasia. We've had for a while now just complete sexual looseness and immorality. We have now not only just a, a, a toleration or acceptance of homosexuality, but that it is good, that it is now, should, be, should have marriage. There is now the ongoing destruction of, of gender identity. I mean, there are things that we never even thought about that could have been controversial. So there is a, has there ever been such a massive change in values in our nation's history, in just one generation. So that itself is creating a lot of the discord. But the other factor is technology. Through the magic of the Internet and of mass communication, we can now know, we can know everything that is happening pretty much at the time that it is happening. And we can now not only just look into everything, we can comment publicly on everything. And what was once reserved, maybe, you know, talk in the clubhouse or talk in the living room, we now will show and we will tell for everybody to see. And you can see how easily then animosity is stoked, isn't it? Well, you just take a little few strokes of the keyboard and create an uproar. So you put those two factors together. This this massive change in in biblical values. And then now the ability to hear about all those changes all the time or hear people's opinions about them all the time and then give our own opinions about it. And you've got a lot of rancor. Now listen, here's my concern. As a pastor, 
for my people. Who are ardent, ardent followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've talked about this before. I, I, I rarely put anything on Facebook, but I time to time go there and I see my Facebook friends from this church, from back up in Philadelphia, from my church back in Gainesville. And I have to ask the question, why do we who are disciples of Jesus Christ, who are to be known by what? Our love. Why do we sound like those who despise us and who despise our values? Why do we resort to bashing those who bash us? Why do we stereotype those who stereotype us? Why do we speak like those who don't know our Lord and they don't follow our Lord? See, this ultimately is what the question is really about. Who is our king? We all know our king is our Lord Jesus Christ. But from whom are we taking our cue as to how we're going to to fight these battles? How we're going to live? How we're going to speak to our enemies? You know, there was a judge who was asked by the people to set himself and his family line as king. It was Gideon. Gideon was asked to remain as ruler and then his sons. So they said to him, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of of Midian. There it is. He's got it. And he responds. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you. Nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon got it right. He knew what was the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is, will God's people be ruled by the Lord? Or will they look to human rule? Now, there has to be a government. But there can only be one ruler. Only one ruler to whom we give complete allegiance. It is never... God and for the Christian. It must be God only. And look, the times are changing. Times are changing so that we, but particularly our children, our grandchildren, are going to increasingly have to pay a price for following God only. We see that happening now. But perhaps there are you know, one of the reasons, indeed, the only reason Scripture typically gives for when his people are, are being oppressed is to see how, where our true allegiance lies. That's what Scripture gives. God is testing them. Who will they follow? Who will they be like? And so all the more then, we've got to remain true to our values. We cannot budge. There's going to be that pressure to budge. But as we stay true to those values, we also got to demonstrate by the way we speak and interact who our king is. And listen to what our king tells us. This is in Luke 6, 27 to 29. But I say to you who hear, 
you know these words, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Who is your king? One way that you tell is whether you hold true to the values and the commands that our king has given. But one of those commandments that has been given is to love, to love our neighbor. And so when, when we join debates, you know, the debates that are going on of our times, and it is good to do that, by the way. It is good for us to join in and, and speak forth God's truth. But are we going to be distinguished even more by the way we address others, the way that we deliberate, as we are for the viewpoints that we give out? Will we be known for being fair listeners? Will we actually be known as those who, even though we won't accept their viewpoints, we, we understand? We understand where they're, where they're coming from? Because I tell you again, we act like we, we don't. We, those people, they're just bad people. And they just want to control. And they just want to do this and this and that. And that's the only way that we look at them. And so when we have something to say, they're not going to listen to us. So do our words, the way that we use our words, distinguish us as one whose alliance is to the Lord Jesus Christ alone who designated that the mark of his followers was to be known by love. And let's close by looking at that true king. I'm indebted to to an email sent to me and showing me this video and, and speaking of this passage from Isaiah 53. Listen to the scripture, this description of our king. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Now, brothers and sisters, we're entering a time of the year when our thoughts are to move increasingly toward the crucifixion, the great victory of our Lord and King. And I ask of you, during this time, will this time be marked by anger or by our love? Which one do you believe that our Lord desires? I mean, we, we need to be angry at injustice, at wickedness. I mean, the latest things going on about abortion is just is ridiculous. But how should we in the public arena speak? 
How would the Lord of Isaiah 53 have his servants represent him? Now is the time to clearly speak for our king. Now is the time to show our neighbors, and everyone is our neighbor, how the compassion of Jesus is shown, especially to one's enemies. Look to the cross, and let what you see be your guide for following your king. Let's pray. We thank you, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we have to be reminded, as as we were enemies of yours, that he came and he died for us. May we learn and know the mercy of our great God and show forth that mercy to others. May we look ever to the cross and look to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our King. In his name we pray. Amen.